this week on the Backtable Podcast. One thing that a couple interviewees said to me was that no institution is going to have it all, right? Like everyone has their area of expertise. We shouldn't expect any institution to have it all. And when we find a relative area of opportunity, I think um, reaching out across institutions to gather that experience, I think, is key. Let's, let's capitalize on the areas of expertise across institutions. Like we're all one IR family. So helping each other out to make sure we're, we're well-rounded coming out and that we have the exposure to all the different facets of IR, I think will be a service to us in the long run. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Backtable.com. Minimize vessel trauma, dissections, and the need for bailout stenting above or below the knee with the Chocolate PTA Balloon. The balloon's unique nitinol constraining structure creates pillows and grooves that provide a predictable, uniform, and atraumatic dilatation. Learn more about the product details and safety information at medtronic.com backslash peripheral. My name's Eric Keller. I have the distinct honor of guest hosting today and introducing my colleague and friend, Dr. Lola Oladini. Dr. Oladini received her MD and MBA from University of Chicago and is now a chief resident and IRDR resident at Stanford. In addition to her pioneering work that we're going to discuss during this podcast today on what makes a good IR, she also has a passion for diversity, inclusion, and advocacy, and recently received a seed grant for her Break the Glass mentorship program. So I really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, it's an honor to be here, Eric. Yeah, excited to jump right into our discussion. I know we've talked about some of similar things <laughs> um, just off the cuff, so I'm excited to talk about it more more broadly. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that it's it's definitely a timely topic with this new residency program, trying to figure out what the right training program is and you know, what makes a good interventional radiologist today versus yesterday. And so, you know, I'm, I'm interested, I guess, to start in how you got interested in this work in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. So for me, the seed was really sown uh, some, sometime after intern year. Uh, I went to Kaiser in L.A., and there were four IRDR prelims uh, who were all women, by the way, shout out to women in IR. And when we checked in from our respective programs, uh, we were on either coast, we saw that there was quite a bit of variation. And by a bit, I mean a ton of variation in our respective curricular. Um, and it wasn't like we all knew what our niches would be and like we selected programs accordingly. We just planned on going to good IR training programs. And since then, I've realized that good kind of depends on what you're optimizing for. And if you don't know what you're optimizing for, then it can be really tough. Mm. So I'm not going to lie. The planner in me got kind of freaked out, really nervous. Like, how am I going to work hard? If I don't know what working smart looks like for, from the perspective of my end career. And then an opportunity for me to apply for a grant from Stanford to study basically anything uh, came up. And I remember having like this stream of consciousness moment on a Friday night while I was moonlighting. And I spewed out this whole essay about exploring what makes an optimal IR training program. I applied for the grant, forgot about it. You know, I'm not usually the person that wins stuff, but then I actually got the grant. And so then I had to actually follow through and do the work. Another big picture thing I would say uh, that I thought about when applying for the grant and since, um, if there was a math equation 
for what it takes to be a successful IR. And I'm not like a, you know, expert mathematician. I would estimate that successful practice equals excellent training plus a supportive political practice environment combined with great personal attributes. I focused on aiming for the training component, actually, because I felt that the other components were less easily changeable in the short to midterm. That makes sense. I mean, I guess that the the part of practice you're saying that we have the most control over is, you know, I guess where we choose to do training for as much control over that as we have and then what that training looks like exactly. So it makes sense to focus on that aspect of the, I guess, IR experience and journey. Yeah, exactly. This idea of working smart towards end career, I thought if I was pursuing private practice versus academics, that the required skill set would be a little bit tweaked. Yeah. So how do you go about started tackling something like that. I, I, feel, I mean, I feel like a lot of people talk about it, are interested in it, but it, it's such a diverse kind of difficult thing to study, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. So talking a bit about the format and the demographics, you're very familiar with uh, qualitative grounded theory research. I actually chose that methodology. It basically involved recruiting a convenience sample of 71 IR stakeholders, 55 attendings, 10 uh, PGY five and six trainees and six support staff, which included industry reps, IR techs, and IR nurses. And we had 17 attendings from the Northeast, 13 from the Midwest, 13 from the South, and 12 from the West Coast. The split of private practice to academics is about 26 academic and 29 practice, private practice. Uh, so we tried using an interview script, but we tried to keep the conversation a little more casual so people could say what they really felt. And then we transcribed those interviews verbatim and looked for emergent themes, themes that basically kept repeating themselves throughout the interviews. I see. Kind of like um, more of a structured conversation, I guess, uh, than a rigid interview. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, think about it. When you actually jump into a real conversation with people, that's when they tell you how they really feel about a subject matter, something you probably could never glean from a survey. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, it's something definitely near and dear to to my heart. I, I feel like sometimes the surveys, you you get exactly what you ask, which is fine for some questions. But you know, this question in particular, where you maybe have difference of opinions, maybe unpopular opinions sometimes, that maybe that's the, the best way to, to get at those and hear those voices. Yeah, absolutely. So you spoke to a whole bunch of people, like 70-so folks. Uh, sounds like mainly... Uh, attendings faculty, but also some people still at kind of at the end of their training, as well as some nurses and techs, did you say as well? Mm -hmm. And then, so what, what did you find? What were the, I guess, common themes about what makes a good interventional radiologist and training program? Yeah, I thought you'd never ask. Um, so in order, the most common themes were longitudinal patient care experience, and then practice building education, uh, which was a little surprising. Interdisciplinary collaboration, exposure to interdisciplinary collaboration specifically, and then varied case mix, and then exposure to clinical decision-making, and then strong DR training, procedural skills, and then finally graduated autonomy. So for me, the part that was not entirely surprising, but I thought it was interesting that it came through so clearly from the interviews, was that the private practice attendings cared a lot more about practice building education during training than the academic IR attendings did. That's interesting. I mean, I guess that makes sense thinking about it, that maybe that would be 
slightly more important in an environment where you gotta, uh, you kind of eat what you kill, so to speak. But I mean, that's interesting from a training perspective, because I, I can't think of many programs I've came across where that's a, a major discussion. I mean, maybe, maybe later on as you're getting near the end with applications, but definitely not a common structured part of IR residency education. Absolutely. I think some people would even argue, like, is it the responsibility of an academic IR attending to train something that's not directly related to actually doing the procedures and actually taking care of the patients? Mm. But you might find that there's some kind of intertwined relationship between actually being able to take care of patients and getting those patients in your door. I guess so. I guess you, you can't do procedures if you, you don't have a practice to do them within. Exactly. I mean, you mentioned a bunch of other things too. It's kind of a, a high task burden to be able to think about, like, I think you said collaboration, the varies of case mix, the clinical decision-making, and maybe that longitudinal exposure you said was the most important thing people talked about. And then strong diagnostic programs. I mean, that's a breadth of, of skills to try and mesh in even to, I guess, five years yeah. of training. Yeah. So, I mean, what were, what were some other things? I mean, it was there like a common formula about the way to do that or other interesting things that came up in these interviews where people were kind of thinking about what makes a good IR? So something that became pretty important for me was to define certain terms. So two terms that kept coming up over and over again. One was practice building. I wondered, okay, like what actually is practice building? People keep throwing around this buzzword. And another buzzword that kept getting thrown around was clinical IR. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, in my, my interviews, when I used to study turf wars more, that idea of clinical IR came out a lot. And it, I don't know, sometimes when you say like buzzword, it makes me think of sometimes, you know, we all say something because it sounds nice, but maybe we have different meanings behind what that actually means in practice. Yeah, exactly. So starting with practice building and practice building education, when people said that, drilling deeper, uh, they talked about basically the business of IR as it pertains to building a practice to compete with other practices. Things like mm. establishing a culture of follow-up with referring providers, things like basically writing a letter after you've seen a patient or done a procedure, saying what happened and what the result was. Things like learning to recruit new referral streams. So reaching out to a provider for the first time saying, hey, I offer this procedure. Then also things like um, new service line development. For instance, if you have an endo-AVF program, like how do you approach the nephrologists and all the other stakeholders to say, hey, let's do this new thing. And then more basic, less uh, surface interesting things like CPT billing and coding, even ENM billing and coding. That was all wrapped up into what people referred to when they said practice building. I see. It sounds very relationship-based. I mean, whether you are reaching out after the procedure or trying to establish those new lines that sounds a lot in terms of who you know and what they think about you in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think the relationship component of practice building is essential. I think that is kind of like the start, even before a patient comes in your door, right? You have a PCP or some other provider who has a patient with a problem and they want to find someone that they can trust to help their patient. And so truly, before you have a relationship with the patient, oftentimes, especially in the private practice setting, you have to develop a relationship with the referring provider. Um, and I think that actually is wrapped up into people's definition of practice building. So it's mm. not necessarily distinct from longitudinal patient care. It may actually be 
part of that cycle. Kind of like two sides of the same coin in a way. Yeah. Do people have specific strategies and how best to do that? Like you mentioned, following up after the procedure. There was actually a whole Backtable podcast just as a tangent on practice building, which I think is is interesting. I wonder what themes came up in your conversations. Yeah, I think a big thing that came up was um, availability, affability, and ability. You know, the three A's, but a, a different A's. take on that. <laughs> a different take on that was actually the logistics of how you make yourself available. Like one interview we talked about actually like having like the cell phone numbers of providers and then actually texting them, you know, direct follow-up on what went on with their patients, either after a clinic visit or after a procedure to say, hey, you know, closing the loop on Mr. Smith, here's what's going on, just wanted to let you know. And mm-hmm. having that direct streamlined line of communication, I thought was a really interesting proposal on how to build those relationships and build that practice. That's interesting. Just as a tangent, after, I guess, after doing these, if you've been on IR call, have you mm-hmm. done that? Like, Ooh, uh, you know, texted people afterwards or things like that? <laughs> so personally, closing the loop, I think after this project, I think I tend to directly reach out more quickly um, mm. to the referring providers, just knowing that it's good practice, no matter what field you're in, to close the loop. Um, so I think the texting works well if you're in a system where either, you know, you've built the relationships and you have phone numbers, or if you have something like we have at Stanford, for instance, which is like a messaging system that just has everyone's number already built in. Yeah. Um, so it's pretty, pretty easy to close the loop. But, you know, something interesting, Eric, is like as integrated residents, we get about approximately a month of IR a year. So the amount yeah. of time we have to kind of work on all of these skill sets that may be important in practice, you know, I would say is somewhat a little uh, more, it's more limited in the first three years, three, four years of training. Yeah, because of, you know, you're only getting a, a limited amount, I guess, of time on the IR because, well, like you said, I guess part of the things that they wanted was strong diagnostic program or training. So this is kind of uh, at, at times it's like a tug of war. It feels like we are kind of a citizen of two worlds during that first part of our DR training. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is um, a key consideration. How do you balance the diagnostic requirements, right? Knowing that you need to be an excellent diagnostician with all of the components of IR that you may need to do in practice. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, there's this idea of being a clinical IR that comes up. Um, Sometimes it seems like it can be at odds with the requirements of being an excellent diagnostic radiologist, but I think it need not be that way. And so I, I do want to delve into that a little bit. Yeah, let's, t- let's tackle clinical IR. <laughs> um, so I, I want to quote um, a few of my de-identified interviewees. Um, so IR28, my 28th interview, he comes on and says that currently only lip service is being paid to the paradigm of clinical IR. And said that many real world world practices are lacking the clinic infrastructure and many residency programs are not providing adequate exposure to outpatient clinic. And some folks are saying that these uh, trainees who are going in these clinical IR training programs where clinical IR is just a name, they may not get the tools and the strategies to build a new practice area or a new service offering. Um, They're Hmm. saying that better clinic integration into IRDR residents would be a fundamental part of being a successful IR. And they furthermore offer that 
procedural specialties that come from historically clinical backgrounds where they actually take care of disease processes uh, have clinic as a fundamental part of training. And their question is, why do we not? And I think the plot thickens further. So if we have clinical exposure as something we're saying we need and we're saying, you know, have more clinic, some people think that actually clinic is necessary but not sufficient to be a clinical IR. Um, some people say you get clinical in the hospital and clinical is just learning how to manage outpatients. Hmm. And so clinic may not be the only thing we need to practice, quote unquote, clinical IR. But if clinical IR is what we should be practicing, then maybe clinic is a component to be incorporated. But the question is, do we need to practice, you know, clinical IR? Like, what does this really mean? <laughs> yeah. I mean, just... Just you describing that makes me wonder, I guess, if we have a shared understanding of what clinical IR looks like, because I imagine that for some folks, it's kind of almost on a continuum. Like for some people, to me, it would seem like it would just mean that, well, I'm more than a, a technician that, you know, I mm -hmm. saw the patient ahead of time, worked him up, did the procedure, followed them out afterwards. Whereas other people take it to this far more extreme where you're managing comorbidities and, you know, following, um, their medications, hypertension, stuff like that, where I don't think that's in other people's definition. Absolutely. I mean, I think the question exists, like, one, is clinical inherent to IR? Like, is being clinical part of what we must do and already do, such hmm. that saying clinical IR is a redundant phrase? You know, some people would say we have to be clinical, like we have to see patients to do procedures on patients. It may not be to the extent of what some are describing, but yeah. clinical IR is redundant because we're all clinical by being IR. Um, so I think that's an interesting perspective. Um, but then mm. some people say that they face a lot of barriers to practicing what they understand to be clinical IR. So I find that interesting as well. Uh, so in, in my series of interviews, people cited several barriers. Some were related to culture and tradition. Uh, for instance, some people said that practices in the real world don't support clinical practice outside of just performing procedures. I had three interviewees mention that. And then I had another person, IR48, who was a PGY5 resident, say, the training paradigm has shifted. However, the real world, by and large, has not. And then others, uh, I had three interviewees mention that radiology culture is basically accustomed to work being sent to them. And, and that kind of hinders this clinical paradigm of practice as they see it. Um, yeah. So those were some of the barriers uh, that people mentioned when they were talking about the importance of training clinical IR for the upcoming residents. Yeah, it's super interesting. And I mean, it, it makes me think, like going back to what you said earlier about is saying clinical IR even necessary? You know, we don't say clinical vascular surgery or clinical transplant surgery would just say transplant surgery because the clinical parts implied. It's almost yeah. like that in IR's differentiation from radiology, as we go through this kind of identity crisis of sorts, we feel the need to, to put it out there like, oh no, this isn't just radiology, this is like clinical interventional radiology to differentiate ourselves. But then to your point, it's hard to make that reality because we still in a sense have that radiology world where people are sending us things rather than people coming directly to us exactly yeah you know there were quite a few barriers that people brought up 
from these cultural and more tradition-related barriers to practicing what they considered clinical IR, which they often deemed necessary for successful training and practice. Mm. But then other barriers that people brought up were more so behavioral, like things that we're not doing and we're not training our residents to do either. Uh, For instance, people suggested oftentimes there may be too little solicitation of feedback from referrers. Um, Hmm. So maybe we could be improving something to improve our relationship and improve our referrals, but we're not because we're not reaching out, you know. And then others mention, actually, practice building as something that we're not training and that potentially as a barrier to the practice of clinical IR, which, again, many people who I interviewed thought that this practice of clinical IR was necessary for success. I think that these are two interesting points the lack of feedback solicitation, and also the lack of training on practice building education. And I mean, we may have some solutions (laughs) to offer for those. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me, I guess, and that when I was looking at different programs, even into this new IRDR paradigm, it, it feels like most people's, when they were pitching this idea of that, you know, this program is a clinical program, it basically meant that you were going to have some time in clinic. But it sounds like you're saying, well, the definition of clinical IR across these interviews is actually broader than that. It involves not only clinic, but how do people, how do patients get to that clinic visit in the first place? And what were you doing to make that happen? Exactly. I think there are lots of components of what go into training for successful practice. And it may be that, you know, getting patients in the door in the first place is something that maybe we can train. I wonder, I think actually that the SIR Residency Essentials has a couple of lectures built in on practice building. I haven't gotten to that portion myself to kind of see what it's like, but I think it, it is something that could be offered. Um, and that gets me, me to another point, which is the uh, lack of standardization of training across programs. Quite a few interviewees brought that up as something that may hinder successful training. Um, one IR suggested that maybe we ought to swap to a competency-based evaluation of trainees. Another IR suggested having a service line approach to training IR for all residents, such that you have maybe an attending who's a service line champion for something like vascular oncology, peds, neuro, thoracic pain, etc. And like just having an attending who's responsible for making sure that the trainees get that education. And if there are any gaps, that attending figures out, okay, well, how are we going to fill that gap? Maybe we set up an elective experience. Maybe we have, you know, virtual training on the subject matter, but just having some kind of accountability and responsibility on training across all the different disease areas that we manage and treat. Um, that was an interesting suggestion from one of the interviewees. I see more of a, in terms of boxes that you have to check that it's more of service line experience rather than ACGME competencies. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, with the specialty being so new, I feel like like you have to start somewhere. And obviously the ACGME competencies are very, uh, I think they're pretty valuable in just being a good doctor in general. But when you get to a new specialty that's kind of morphed out of, um, you know, several antecedent fields, maybe there are new um, checkboxes that we should be kind of using to benchmark our progress. And and maybe it does evaluate, you know, level of competence, both procedurally, clinically, I guess, in terms of evaluation and management as well. Just being able to check those boxes and, um, you know, maybe it includes more than just a case log, but maybe 
some measure of competence at those cases that you've performed mm. as well. So hearing that from some interviewees was very interesting for sure. And I think one interviewee mentions that this whole competency evaluation can be made more difficult given the current integration. Some of the interviewees were saying this is more of a one, three, two experience than a, a truly integrated experience. And they were suggesting like, you know, maybe more exposure during the early years could be helpful. But I think that's hard to implement. And again, we get to the issue of the diagnostic training. Yep. Like, you know, how much can you truly encroach on that and still have adequately trained diagnosticians at the end of the day? Um, so some interviewees actually said on the contrary that DR is what makes our specialty unique and what differentiates us from other technicians. So if we encroach too much on that, maybe we'll lose what makes us unique as a specialty. Hmm. That is interesting. I guess, you know, there are IR is definitely not the only specialty that uses imaging to do minimally invasive endovascular procedures or just image-guided procedures in general, that that is something that differentiates us is our diagnostic training. And diagnostic radiology is, is not easy at all. Were there any other things that I did? I know you mentioned um, graduated autonomy as well as something that people, people valued about um, a good training program. Absolutely. Graduated autonomy with feedback was something that came up quite a few times. I saw you raised your eyebrows there. <laughs> I have a really interesting quote from um, one of the PGY-5 residents that I interviewed. This PGY-5 said, some attendings say that I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you something. And then they proceed to show you the entire case. Oh, yeah. Classic. <laughs> and, and I thought that that was interesting. Because, you know, it's really hard to give feedback, especially when there's a patient on the table in front of you. Mm -hmm. um, another attending, IR31, emphasized that it's pretty important to walk through the mistake and provide constructive feedback. And uh, the interviewee accepted that it could be difficult to do in high stakes situations, but paying more attention to the graduated autonomy that we're giving residents and then also giving feedback like, hey, you're not here yet, you know, to where I'll let you take this case from start to finish. And here's what you need to do. Here's what I need to see in you. Um, I think the interviewees who mentioned graduated autonomy thought that that could actually bolster our training across the board. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah, it seems like a difficult balance that, you know, the patient's health, that patient care has to come above the educational experience to some degree. It's like you can't compromise their procedure just to get better training. But at the same token that well, if you are going to take it over, you know, make sure that the case is that, done as well as it can for the patient that you, maybe you should then kind of debrief in some way or something like that. So that the next time you can build upon that experience, maybe more constructively. Yeah. I think it's hard though. You know, IR is fast paced. Yeah. Most days are busy. Yep. <laughs> we have sick patients. And so I honestly don't know how to kind of standardize that graduated autonomy with feedback when things can get busy, you know, but I think it's interesting to consider, uh, given that a good number of interviewees mentioned that that's pretty essential for successful training. Yeah, it makes sense. One thing that I wanted to make sure that I, I asked you was that I, I'm just curious what your opinion is of all of this. You know, you, you've talked to all these people, you're an integrated resident yourself. What do you think the ideal training program looks like? What is a good IR to you? <laughs> That's a great question. I think my personal opinion is a combination of what a lot of the interviewees have said, 
Um, the 71 folks I interviewed, I think they all have a lot of wisdom to offer in their respective areas of expertise. I think that one thing I generally agree with is potentially the earlier integration of clinic components and um, clinical experiences and co-curricular experiences, such as, you know, rotating on IR-related rotations, maybe like ICU, potentially earlier. Um, mm. But then on the back end, I think the incorporation of diagnostic radiology as senior IR trainees might keep us from being in this situation where we start a new job that may require a DR component and we haven't looked at an MR CT in, you know, over a year. <laughs> yeah. So I think kind of respecting both sides of the paradigm here where we're saying DR is important for our training and we don't want to neglect it, for instance, for up to a year at a time. But we're also saying because we want to be clinically good, know how to work up patients, know how to manage them in an outpatient setting, we want to start training that earlier. So I think yep. some combination of that would be my ideal. And then finally, there's a component of training towards end career that I think we could really hone in on. Like once you're a PGY5, PGY6, once you're in your, in your later stages of training and you know, like, I want to go into academics or I want to go into private practice, tailoring the training accordingly, I think would add a lot of value. So for instance, if you're, if you know, you're going into private and you know, you're going to like aim for a 60, 40 IRDR split, potentially an extra rotation on body MR or cross-sectional MSK may benefit you given the practice you're going into. And then if you know you're doing academics and you want to focus in on PAD and maybe your practice has been predominantly IO and complex hepatobiliary, maybe you're being sent off for an elective at a high volume center that does peripheral arterial disease. So I think just maybe more hybridization, cross-collaboration across institutions and within institutions across specialties at an earlier stage, including DR at a later stage, I think for me, that's like the perfect hybrid that can optimize our training. And I think my own opinion has been informed by the feedback from all these folks that I've spoken to. I can't take all that credit um, for having this lofty, <laughs> you know, optimal IR dream. Uh, but I think we can get there. I think just having a lot of humility, recognizing that it's going to take time to optimize and you may overcorrect in one direction when trying to incorporate a new process or new component, I think that uh, will serve us well in the long run. Uh, I think that if we have the desire to do what's right for our patients, combine it potentially with a little business knowledge if we're doing private practice, uh, we should have the tools that we need to succeed. In practical terms, right, like people ask, well, what's the so what of all of this? You know, you can talk to a lot of people, so what? <laughs> mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I would say in practical terms, let's not exclude trainees from those boring conversations where we are pitching a new service line offering to the nephrologist, for example. Or let's ask the trainee to come up with a proposal for how he or she would build up a new practice area maybe one that's struggling at your institution, like have them build a service plan and, and give it to you and show it to you and critique them like you would any colleague. And then maybe have someone come and talk to trainees about the business of IR, things that seem really boring, bread and butter, like ENM coding, CPT coding, medical malpractice, um, contract negotiation, maybe case discussions on how to handle scenarios with referring providers maybe even how to have outreach for services that you offer with folks who seem to not really know what you can do. 
I think those things are all practical ways to to take this idea of practice building and instill it into our training in a way that still is patient-centered, honestly. Like none of this is just saying, learn how to market on Instagram and learn how to do pay-per-click. That's not what we're saying here. We're saying, let's find out how to maximize our value in the hospital and also in the outpatient setting for the benefit of our patients. That was really beautiful. I got goosebumps. I mean, that sounds great. It's, it's kind of like, how do you find a balance between standardization and customization in training? How do you have like a basic competency, but then empower someone to get the career that they want ultimately during training? That, I mean, that sounds great. And I also want to say that backing up that I think it's super interesting that we talk so much about you know, how do you integrate IR into those diagnostic years? I very rarely ever hear anyone talk about how do you integrate diagnostic radiology into the interventional radiology years where for someone like me, who is someone interested in kind of splitting my time between the two, that is, that is a fear of mine is that I'll, I'll lose those skills. Now I will say that, you know, I know that there are definitely people in or especially the view diagnostic radiology more as a means to an ends or purgatories. Maybe that's not their thing, but for me, that's, that's a big part of my identity that I don't want to lose. So I, I really wow. appreciated that. What did you say about standardization with customization? That was really good. Like SIR should like trademark that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just sounds like a lot of kind of some of the themes you were discussing talked about, like there are these things that we want to get out of training that we should standardize, be it through like service lines or whatever else. But then the other very strong narrative is how can we empower people that want to go into private practice versus academics? Are they going to do a PAD heavy service versus a biliary heavy service to kind of customize that? So standardization with customization is really a beautiful marriage and balance to find. Yeah, I think it's tough to find, but I'm confident that we're headed in that direction. Um, and I think to all the residents who were, you know, out there in similar positions to you and I, like wondering like, okay, like how can we optimize our program given that things are so early? I would say just take the initiative, like pitch something, you know, I think uh, both you and I, we have no fear of being told no or being rejected. So, you know, even at Stanford, for instance, we're piloting this longitudinal clinic experience where getting in, in small groups sent to different clinics to try it out and see if we think it's something we want to institute more broadly. Um, so I would tell the residents, you know, like be a little shameless and just pitch new ideas to your program of things you want to see or things that you're worried that you won't have when you leave for practice, you know, try to start doing it now. Um, but I think we are still diagnostic uh, radiology trainees as well. So not neglecting that while we're in it, you know, not failing our boards or anything like that, but just kind of pushing for a little bit more, I think would be awesome. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, do you practice what you preach and that just as, as a side, everyone should know that you, you by far have been a champion of making our residency program better than it, it already is. And definitely your co-residents, me included, appreciate that a lot. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, I think we've touched on all the, the, the interesting parts. Like, you know, obviously there's a lot of results that I'm going to kind of spew out from the interviews that I did, but I think the, the more hard to reach intangibles of the project, we've kind of fleshed out a little bit um, in today's podcast. So I'm really excited about that. 
Well, I really appreciate you taking the time, coming on, sharing with uh, the Backtable community your results. I think this is super interesting work. Like I said, really pioneering work that I think will help us grow as a specialty and take IR that next step into the future. You know, is there anything else that uh, you thought was particularly interesting or that we felt like we should have covered? I'll just reiterate Soapbox one more time about the elective rotations as a supplement to our current offerings. I think one thing that a couple interviewees said to me was that no institution is going to have it all, right? Like everyone has their area of expertise. We shouldn't expect any institution to have it all. And when we find a relative area of opportunity, I think um, reaching out across institutions to gather that experience, I think is key. Let's, let's capitalize on the areas of expertise across institutions. Like we're all one IR family. So helping each other out to make sure we're, we're well-rounded coming out and that we have the exposure to all the different facets of IR, I think will be a service to us in the long run. Definitely. Well, thank you again, Dr. Orladini, for coming on Backtable Podcasts. I hope that our listeners enjoyed this episode on what makes a good IR and how to become one. Please make sure to stay tuned. We have lots of awesome episodes coming out in the the future that's available on multiple things, Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, and et cetera. Hope to hear you keep listening. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Brian Hartley. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Zubi Syed, article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson, and Vivek Prasad, social media and PR by Anne Dang, and newsletter by Lauren Fang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.